0: we'll hear insight and perspective from two guests that fill some of the many roles within this incredible industry. Welcome to The Room Block and enjoy your stay. Greetings, Room Block podcast listeners. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode. I want to welcome any new listeners to the show. Thanks so much for joining me and welcome back to any repeat listeners. I think anyone who is listening and I am always appreciate your support. The best way to support the show is to leave a review or rating over on Apple Podcasts, and of course, to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Just a reminder that I am taking a little summer break, so as of now, I am planning to resume with an anniversary episode in August to celebrate one year of doing the show. I can't believe it's been almost that long, but uh, I'm very proud and happy to celebrate that. So today's episode will be the last one for a little while, and it's a great chance now to catch up on any episodes that you might have missed. You know, while I strive to keep the show relevant to the important issues in our industry My main goal is to share the stories and perspectives of all those who work in it. So anyone just finding this show now can still find valuable information even in older episodes. Speaking of valuable, I am really proud to present today's episode to you. You know, I've had a lot of moments over the past year that fall under the you know, did you ever think you would be doing, you know, a podcast? Or did you ever think you would be doing, you know, a whole bunch of different things, right? And it it's just so funny where life takes you, because I would have said no to all of those, like, you know, a year, year and a half ago. But this podcast and some of my past guests have directed me to here to, to this episode today. So I am a member of the Greater Midwest Chapter of PCMA, or Professional Convention Management Association, for anyone who does not know. And for the first time, I'm involved in committee work. I've talked about it a bit in the past. And so um, I am currently a part of the Inclusion, Diversity, and Equity Task Force, in addition to my other committee work. As so many people experience when doing this kind of work, I have met some really amazing people and been part of conversations that I am so happy to say contribute to the greater good of our industry and, in this case, society as a whole. That, to me, is also the beauty of a podcast, which is the ability to have and bring conversations to a larger audience. And where they're available at your fingertips, really, whenever you need a dose of inspiration, motivation, or education about something. So, therefore, in partnership with the IDE Task Force and the Greater Midwest Chapter of PCMA, I am so pleased to welcome three key members of the IDE Task Force to chat about the important work that they have been doing over the past year most organizations jumped into some kind of action to support IDE efforts after the murder of George Floyd, and that is including the Greater Midwest Chapter. But here we are a year later. Has the work continued? Have changes been made? Are the conversations still happening? Well, thanks to Yolanda Simmons Battle, Jatar Barrett, and Ali Shebeck, as well as the other members of the IDE task force, yes, they most certainly are. And I have Yolanda, Jatar and Ali on the show today to talk a bit more about how and why the task force was formed and what type of programming it provides. We also reflect on some of the other significant events and anniversaries that are important to discuss when exploring any IDE efforts that are being made our history may be in the past but it created the foundation that we stand on today and that foundation is in need of some major repairs and sadly there's still new cracks that are forming so this is why Yolanda Jatar and Ali and the rest of the task force does the work that they do and this is why I bring this conversation to you today i hope you enjoy listening and learning. And maybe this will be one of those podcasts that ended up giving you the dose of inspiration, motivation, and education that you needed in order to enter into some important conversations of your own hello everybody and thanks so much for joining us for another episode of the room block podcast we have a special episode today with three guests joining me instead of my usual two which I, I always love inviting more to the party so I am very pleased to welcome to the show Jatar Barrett Yolanda Simmons battle and Ali Shabeck welcome ladies to the room block thank hello you. thank hi. You <laughs> hi thank you so uh we are here today because there is a lot going on in the world of inclusion diversity and equity and you know it's it's been a topic that we've been talking about really well for many years but a high high focus over the past year or so and the three ladies joining me today are all members of the greater midwest chapter of pcma's IDE Task Force. And so that is why we wanted to get together today and have a little conversation about the task force, the work that the task force is doing, how it was formed, why it was formed. So before we get into that, I just want to start and let my guests introduce themselves, let them tell you who they are and how they came to be working in the industry and doing this task force. So let's start with Yolanda. Hello, everyone. My name
1: is Yolanda simmons Battle. I am the Senior Meeting Manager at AHIMA, and I am the Chair of the Inclusion, Diversity and Equity
0: Task Force for GMC-PCMA. Excellent. Thank you, Yolanda. And Jatar, how about you? Hello, everyone. Uh,
2: My name is Jatar Barrett. I am currently the Director of Corporate Events at Alpha Kappa
0: Alpha Sorority, and I am also on the task force. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. And last but not least, Allie.
3: Hi, my name is Allie Shebeck. I am a senior experience designer with PRA Chicago. And in the GMC chapter, I am the marketing co-chair and also a member of the IDE task force.
0: Excellent. Oh, you know, And I didn't ask you all, how long have you all been members either a PCMA or, you know, part of, of GMC.
3: I've been a PCMA member for four years, but a GMC member only for two years. I started in the Southwest and Pacific chapter and then
0: moved to Chicago. Oh, okay. So you've had a little experience cross chapter. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And then Jatar, how about you? How long have you been a member of PCMA?
2: Uh, I have been a member of PCMA since 2006. Uh, When I started, I was part of the awards committee for about six years, and then uh, I dropped out for a while as an active member, and then I came back uh, in 2018, um, and I have been a general member, but last year I joined the task force by invitation, and I am also now a member of the sponsorship committee.
0: Oh, perfect. And then Yolanda, how about you?
1: I have been a member of GMC since hmm, 2010, 2009, I think. Um, I may be shaving a couple of years off, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) I've been an active member, started out with the program committee, then went to awards and became active again. With the IDE
0: task force, perfect. You know, so I have been a member on and off of uh, PCMA since I want to say about two thousand nine, two thousand seven, somewhere in there, And various hotel sales roles and that kind of thing. But I've never, until this year, really been active in on a committee or a task force or anything like that. So it, it's been exciting and rewarding to actually. Have a chance to do that. So, and it's truly an honor to be here with you all today and to talk about the work of the IDE Task Force. So let's go back, and I would love to know what exactly is the IDE Task Force and why was it created? When was it created? How was it created? Well,
1: I'll start off. Um, IDE Task Force began in August of 2020. Um, it was a conversation that Tamara Jones and I had through email. It was after the murder of George Floyd and the riots had t- took place and the marches across the country. And Tamara sent me an email and she asked, how are you doing? Hmm. And it really started that uh, the conversation about what could GMC do in this area um started from a how are you doing
0: email so
1: that that was wonderful yeah
0: you know that's been such an important part i think of this whole of everything is just the fact that people are hurting you know people were hurting last year people it's it's still such a challenging topic and i think that's really telling of of tamara's kindness that she reached out to just say how, how are you doing? And then from there, this plan was born. That's very cool. And then, I mean, was there any kind of anything like this within the GMC before?
2: Not to my recollection. I've never seen anything um, really that addresses um, the sort of disparity, even in The things that we experience, not just in every day, but in the hospitality industry and professional careers, nothing previous.
0: So, no. Right. And I mean, I don't even remember necessarily any kind of really intense programming about it before either. And so, I mean, I think that's probably uh, such a good reason why the task force was born was like, you know what, it's time to actually start having these conversations I mean they've been had but really start having them and keep having them right so I mean here we are it's been almost a year that the task force has been in place which is huge so what are some of the programs that that the task force has has put into place or what are what are some of the topics that's been discussed
2: um I have been on at least two uh, different uh, programs that have happened. One was uh, focusing on women specifically, and then uh, the one previous uh, specifically was Authentic Answers to Uncomfortable Questions with John Hickson and Willie Benjamin from Kuna. Um, and. That one in particular focused on uncomfortable questions about the hospitality industry, things that we've acknowledged or noted, uh, challenges that we've had in our professional careers, and um, you know what, how we overcame them, how we deal with them, uh, how we discuss them, who we discuss them with, uh, and any changes that we've seen. And then the one specific the women, we spoke to three different women of color Um, and we asked them about their experience in the hospitality industry, the things that have, you know, hurt or hindered their career. If they felt that being a woman or, uh, being a woman of color, uh, which one, you know, they felt had a greater impact on their career and their career trajectory. Um, as well as, you know, the specific challenges that women face, um, in hospitality industry, uh, we overrepresent the workforce but we underrepresent the management um in higher level positions and those were both interesting conversations uh that we've had so far and we're of course planning to have more and I know Allie was part of one and I will let her speak to
0: that oh yes
3: Yeah, I um, worked with Morgan Pruitt, who is a member of our task force on a couple of sessions relating to the millennial and younger generations perspective on black lives matter and the racial justice movement. And that was really interesting. We got to speak with a few millennial leaders in um, in and out of the industry that are local to Chicago. So, we talked with J. Maul Green, who is a huge activist and actually ran for mayor in Chicago, uh, Morgan Malone, and uh, a few other people, and got their perspectives on what's happening on the ground every day and what do younger people expect of leaders, um, you know, leaders in our industry, leaders in politics. Um, Because I think what we're seeing is so many young people have really high expectations now. They're, you know, no one is okay with the status quo anymore. And especially in the workforce, people are not as married to their jobs. And so if you get somewhere and you realize that you're at a workplace that's not inclusive, not diverse, um, not accommodating to disabilities or your, your life, no one has a reason to to stick around. So I think we're going to see that um, workplaces and organizations are going to become a lot more cognizant of their individuals um, as humans and see them holistically and not as a cog in the machine.
0: And thank goodness for that, right? I mean, it is amazing when you think about the, I don't want to say demands, but requests, I guess, of, of the workforce now and, and in the way that people, you know, they don't want to work for an employer who's not going to have these elements that that make everybody feel comfortable. I mean, it's just where maybe before there was a time where it's like, hey, you know what, it's work, I just got to deal with it. But like, that—that that is not the case anymore. It's like you get on board or get out, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's, and I thank goodness for that. And I don't know, you know, there's so many reasons, I guess, for that change. But I think one big one is just the fact that people are educated and they're getting more educated and it's because of the work like you all are doing with the task force that is making sure that people know there are there are options, there are better options out there, mm-hmm. right? There's there's ways to be that we need to um, you know, we just need to be paying attention to to everybody's needs and having people come and tell their stories is such a powerful part of that, Mm
3: -hmm. such an
0: important part of that.
1: I think it's okay to say demands. I think we should use those words, those, uh, those aggressive language, because recognizing for those who have been doing this work for years, I mean, I don't take it away for those who've been studying what inequality look like in the workplace in the family in culturally how we interact with one another for years they've been boots on the ground um it's time to demand this is what we expect it's not to say to take anything from someone else but to raise awareness which i believe our programs have done having these uncomfortable conversations being vulnerable to ask the questions that those in certain circles have been asking for years. Now we're just having these conversations in the open, so to speak. And so demanding that we don't have to work in an environment that negates the the beauty of all of us, not just what we are on the outside, but what we bring to the table on the inside. And differences make us more interesting And working together is more fabulous. It makes the world look more beautiful. Um, And I know some people may think that's a Pollyanna view, but it's also very true. But it's going to take work to get there. And the thing that I believe our task force want to always ensure that um, because we're having these conversations and GMC have been supportive and and bringing these programs and having articles and bringing these notices to point that we can't rest on our laurels. Mm -hmm. We can't sit down and say, Oh, we've gotten there. We've made it. No, we have not.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, you know, and you're right by using words, like demand instead of request like I I am glad that you corrected me on that to be honest because it is the weak language <laughs> that I just used that is that has kept us where we're at. So you know you're right you're a hundred percent right that it, it it is time to just push it keep pushing it harder. That's the only way that we're gonna make change right?
2: Yes. Absolutely. What is the, it's a, there's a quote that says, um, it's either power or power is not given uh, by the oppressor. It must be taken from the oppressed. Um, and nothing, you can ask for whatever you like, uh, and the person always has the right to say no, but not if you take it. Uh, and I feel like that has been the view of uh, the establishment of the American you know, society, they, you know, wanted this land, so they took it. They didn't ask the Native Americans that lived here, can we please have this land? We, you know, really want to start over and start something new. They took it, they stole it, they murdered, they raped, they killed, and they took it um, because they had the power to do so, the strength to do so. Um, And so whenever it is unfortunately, the issue of power, it's rarely ever an equal negotiation. It's rarely ever something that has to be, you know, like, oh, this is my viewpoint. I hope that you understand. Um, if that was the way that it went, we wouldn't ever have to go to war. Um, it's always something about, you know, somebody else's no or inability to see, uh, another side or lack of willingness to give that creates these situations. Uh, right or wrong. I'm not saying that it's right to do that. I'm just saying that that's the way of the world that we live in. So, uh, I think, uh, this continues to be a fight. It is not going to be something that goes gently into the night and equality will be met and everything will be fine. It will be a constant, you know, struggle. It will be a constant negotiation, um, of, what is going to be given, and what is going to have to be taken,
0: yeah, I mean, and it I guess it, it's really absurd when you think about it because we are just talking about equal footing that's right it. right <laughs> that's
2: it, it. it it's not it's not more, it's not better and, it's, and my favorite statement is justice is not a pie. it's not going to run out just because somebody has more pie it doesn't mean somebody gets less. It's not a food group. It's not a resource. Justice is just. Justice.
0: Well, so to go back to when the task force was formed, so Yolanda, it was you and Tamara who kind of, the idea was born with your email. So then how how did everyone else get involved? Like Allie, how did you get involved?
3: Well, I was um, a member of the marketing committee at the time, and my team leaders sent out an email and said, you know, hey, GMC is thinking about starting this task force. And it was right after the murder of George Floyd um, and, you know, all of the other murders that happened last year, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery. um, And I was furloughed from work at the time and just very, very restless. Like, I need to do something. But i don't really know what. And I think that a lot of people felt that way last year. Um, and so then when they reached out and said, you know, we're thinking about starting this task force, I was like, yes, please let me sink my teeth into something and learn and be a help in some way because
0: I, I can't just do nothing. And, you know, I think a lot of people were probably in a, a similar place. And it's interesting and challenging now as. The tides are turning in our industry and people are finding themselves back at work we were just saying when we get on this call everyone's like it's so busy all of a sudden (laughs) so you know the the, but the focus has to continue Mm -hmm.
3: yeah i think it's about now just weaving this into all of our conversations at work at home with our friends um and you know one thing i've really learned is not being afraid to to speak up if you hear something that um, is offensive or might be construed as offensive or if someone uh, maybe doesn't really know what they're talking about you know I'm less afraid just to say hey let's take a step back and think about this whereas before I think a lot of people um, especially women especially white women are you're a little bit afraid like especially if it's your boss if they say something offensive or you know on the line you're like, I, I don't have any recourse here. So I'm just going to pretend like I didn't hear it. But that's been the problem. That's why we are here today is no one was willing to ever have this
0: conversation. Right. I've definitely been in that position of I'm just a peacekeeper. But mm-hmm. that's not <laughs> that's not that doesn't move yeah. any needles. No
3: more. No more.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I think it was
1: I think it's a great. Uh, showing of GMC that they took this risk Um, and you know let's be honest this was a risk because it was not being done it hadn't been done. Um, I know they had the uh, Black Lives Matter group that started probably right when we were doing the IDE um, in Washington DC I think Um, I don't want to misconstrue information but we were really the first chapter to really do something Tamara and I had had conversations early on about what could our chapter be doing more with inclusivity, and so with the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, and just like it was like it was just a bar- barrage of constant images of black and brown young people being murdered by the police and nothing being done is a way what can we do how can this as a chapter what should we be doing not what could we do what what should we be doing and so that conversation grew and then we talked with um Rachel and with Molly and it was birthed from there and I called people like hey I need you do you think you can be a part um names were given for people that we thought could participate so it just it was wonderful um I had Ali's name I had reached out to Jatar um reached out to Sheree and then she gave some names and so we just basically just kind of came together and it was birthed from that um for us just coming together to um my my goal was to make sure we kept it small enough that we could be vulnerable enough with each other and that was like the very first conversation, being vulnerable so we can share, so we can be able to put out there those difficult conversations and difficult, difficult topics to our membership. Um, understanding that we may get some pushback, knowing that there will be some individuals who would not jump on board initially, um, but knowing, being brave, being bold, to go ahead and do what we needed to do.
0: That is such a good point about keeping it small so you could all amongst yourselves be vulnerable because I suppose that's how the topics are born. Right? I mean, you have to be able to find a space where you go in and say, look, like, I'm feeling this. And if I'm feeling this, like someone else, anyone else out there? And then within the within the group, you could be like, yes, like multiple people are experiencing this or these are things that we feel like we need to be discussed. I mean, did you actually receive any pushback throughout this whole process? Silent pushback. <laughs> well, I think... Um you know, like most things that
2: happen, you know, um, overt racism, you know, is never smiled upon or looked at in a friendly manner. But a lot of things are covert. A lot of things are undercover. A lot of things, you know, it's not what they say, it's what they don't say. Um, So I think in similar fashion, you know, those conversations that are happening that are not, um, you know, reinforcing this task force are happening they're just not happening to us um, mm-hmm. so I think that that would be a fair thing to
0: say <laughs> right that makes sense well and you know I I feel like there's been other conversations that I've had about organizations that you know kind of everybody started to jump on board last year with saying okay we're gonna have a task force we're gonna we're gonna do this But just forming the task force, just saying that it's there for the purpose of being able to say you have it, (laughs) isn't really doing anything. And I feel like there's, there are organizations that have found themselves in that place. So there's people who say, Hey, like I thought we were trying to do something here and actually we're not. So I think that it's so cool that the GMC and and the task force, this task force has done so much work to actually keep the conversation going.
3: Yeah. Um, I saw recently an Instagram post from Pull Up For Change that um, was encouraging companies last year to share what they're doing to promote diversity and how diverse really are you. And they just posted the other day that of the 300 plus companies that said they were on board, only three companies have released their diversity data in the past year. Wow. Really? Yeah. But
2: if you think about it in in sort of this way, if you think about it in the, you know, the covert versus the overt, you know, it's about the appearance of, you Mm -hmm. know, like, of course, we're not racist, but all of your actions here show that you have work to do. And maybe you're not racist, but maybe you have some tendencies that need to be addressed, you know, and I think um, I was a panelist on the Choose Chicago. Um, diversity inclusion conversation uh, with Yolanda as well. And, you know, I said that every company has their, the data, I can't tell you the number of applications I've completed in the last 20 years that have asked for my race, have asked for my age, have asked for my gender. So if you don't need that information, then why are you collecting that information? And if you have that information, because now there's an option to say, I prefer not to provide. uh, Whereas before that was never an option. You had to identify yourself, um, for everything. So the information exists, human resources has it. I think what it is, is that when leadership actually sees what that data says about them, they're very uncomfortable with what it says and they're either working with PR to figure out how they flip this to make this look better or they're looking at a way to say, okay, well, this is where our where we started. This is our new benchmark. And they want to show, they want to have something to show for it. So yes, we're great. We've all signed up. But okay, we haven't done it enough there's very little they have actually been able to perform in the time that they've actually signed up that they feel like they want to share so um and then you also again have the ones who do it for the image not for the actual work so they're like look we joined in we did it look our company's on this great list look we're 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 inclusive and it's like No, (laughs) yeah, you you did it so you could have the accolades of doing so, but you're also your internal employees know, they, they know what's lip service versus what's action. And, um, that's unfortunate because that's how it's always been. It's, you know, we have diversity. Look, it's not just all white men here. We've just added one white lady. Look, applause, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) diversity, you know, and, or you know, some some variation of that, you know, Um, and it's always been that way. And what's happening now is that people are asking for people to be accountable for that. Uh, Not just say, look, I've, I've done this, this great thing, I'm going to look into it. It's like, okay, well, you've looked into it enough. Where's the work behind it? Where's the data? Where's the support? Where's the, you know, inclusion? Where's the diversity? Where's the, you know, the hearing impaired? Where are the people who are in wheelchairs or in scooters? Where have you built the ramps? Where have you helped people who have some autistic abilities, but also have, you know, things that can be provided in the workforce? You know, how do you use their abilities to further the company, um, And I think immediately everybody thinks about, you know, black and white, uh, as opposed to, you know, all the other ways that you can be diverse. But uh, it really is more than just color. There's so many ways that you can be inclusive that don't involve just the color of someone's skin. And when companies are taking a look at diversity, they really need to take a look
0: at all of it, not just that particular aspect. It's, that's definitely true? Yeah, you know, I think Yolanda and I—we've had this conversation before. We're talking about different programs that the task force could uh, embark on, and realizing how vast, how deep this conversation really needs to go. And then it is—it is never going to end because there's always going to be some way. I mean, live events. You know, there's, there's fine, you know, there, there's some things that people have tackled as far as, okay, fine, we are found a way to make these more inclusive as far as accommodations um, for people with disabilities. But then now we move into the virtual realm. And that's a whole new mm-hmm. <laughs> area where we have to make sure that we're being inclusive in that way as well. I mean, it's just it goes on and on and on. And, you know, I guess there's people who you know, they say, you know, if, if you don't know until you know, and I, that does though, I think, put the onus on, on people to, to educate themselves. And I, I was going to ask, you know, Chitar and Yolanda as, as women of color, do you feel, do you get sick of the responsibility? Do you feel responsible for, for always driving these conversations? do you feel like you're in a place where it has to fall on you a good amount of the time, or are you starting to feel like other people are, are getting more involved? (laughs) Ha 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 ha. So
1: (laughs) yes, it is very tiring to feel like you are the spokesperson all the time because I am a woman of color. I do not want to speak for all women of color because we are yet diverse and, and, and have differences amongst this category, this bucket that I you know, check off. Um, I feel like there are some who, when you come honestly with a question and specifically, let's have a conversation. But if it's something that you can go to Google and I don't mean this facetiously, but if you could go to Google and look it up, then please feel free and do that. Now, if you find something and you find contradictory information on the same topic and you're asking what my thoughts are or what my opinion my feelings may be then yes we could again have a conversation but I don't want to be the spokesperson I am encouraged in seeing the not just the allies um the term that uh Dr. Whitehead used for one of our programs when she talked about uh Racism in the workplace and and understanding prejudice, and she said, we don't need just allies. We need what was the word? It wasn't assistance. It was um, sponsorship. Sponsors. sponsors, and we need sponsors, those advocates. advocates, advocates, people who are going to mm-hmm. do the work. And so that is what you know. Yes, being an ally, saying yes, I'm going to carry this flag with you. I'm going to stand here with you while you're having this discussion but I need you to go out and and help get the information. If someone is saying, why does this occur? Um, You know, and talking about the inequity, like that's a such a deep ingrained issue in our culture that people just do not want to realize. When people go on social media and say, and I won't say who did this, but say that uh, America is not a racist country, what planet are you living on? <laughs> what, where are you residing? Because, yeah. you know, if we look at the very foundation of the police, culture started to capture slaves. So, I mean, let's understand your history. So I'm going to give you a little tidbit. I'm not going to share everything because I don't know everything. And I'm still learning. So I don't want the expectation just to just to fall on me or on Jatar or on Allie. You know, I I we need to be collectively wanting to have the yearning to get more information. Completely agree.
2: This okay. is also where, you know, having friends of different nationalities works in your favor. Because if you have someone that you can talk to or someone you can go to, then you don't put it on a unsuspecting or unknowing person of color to answer all of those things. Um, You know, me and my friends, I have, A diverse plethora of friends um and we can joke and have those conversations where it's like you listen to a crazy news report and it's like okay who did this and they know i mean like okay which nationality ethnicity or race is responsible for this particular brand of crazy and we can all laugh about it because we know like just as um The comedian Steve Harvey would say it's like if you have these different friends, you can listen to these different headlines and you can hear crazy stuff. And it's like, who did this? Which one of you responsible (laughs) for this this particular crazy? Oh, massive shooting. We know who did that. Oh, drive by shooting. We know who did that. So, I mean, it's it's a funny it can be a funny conversation. It doesn't have to be like this tense, awkward, evil, like, what are you implying type Thing, but you have to have those relationships in place and you have to have, you know, that comfort level to be able to ask those questions. And when it's my friends, people who I know advocate for me when I'm not there, people who, you know, back me up or support me, advocate for me, talk about me, sponsor me when I'm not in the room, it makes a difference. It makes a difference in that for even your colleagues. And as she said, I'm not the spokesperson, but as the person of color who ends up in, you know, the only in several situations, you know, I'm not privy to the things that are talked about when I leave the room or the conversations that they're having about me, when they're questioning my authority or they're questioning my responsibility or they're questioning my decisions, but they do. And they're there and they hear it. And not only do they advocate for me, they feel comfortable coming back to me and saying, this is what was said while you were away or this is what was questioned about you. And this was my response for that. And I just want to let you know, in case this comes back around to you, or this comes back and bites you like this is the conversation. Um, And like she said, I I am you know, not the spokesperson, but often I feel like people of color are often in places or positions where they are the only. And so they have this, we have this tremendous responsibility to feel like I have to be perfect because I might ruin this for the person coming behind me. Um, and that's a tremendous responsibility to carry for any one person for anything ever. Um, But again, there's so few opportunities that are provided or it's like this risk that's taken that we are the only. And we do, like Yolanda said, I don't want to be the spokesperson, but oftentimes I have to uh, because I'm the example. And it's, Hmm. it's discouraging even
0: now. Like we have come so far to only be this far. Right, exactly. Yes, I mean, like, you said before, Yolanda, that the people who are have been working for years, <laughs> having the fighting for years, and the, the conversations just you know, they have to keep going. So we're in this time frame. So we're, we're recording this in in June, and you know around this time of year, um, there are several kind of significant um, dates that have come up um, as far as as you know, the topic of um, inclusivity, diversity, and, and equity. So I just wanted to tap into a few of those because I think that it also kind of ties into the formation of the task force. And again, just that the consistent education, um, you know, and so like I'm talking about, for example, coming up soon is uh, Juneteenth. And uh, it's also, this year is the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa massacre. Um, and so, I mean, these are all things, and then you know, and it was you know, just over a year ago um, that George Floyd was murdered. So, I mean, it's, it's all of these things are kind of happening right around this time, um, coinciding with about the year anniversary of this task force being formed. So I thought it would be good to just go into a little bit, um, some of this information, some of these, some of the significance of this, um, just so we can continue to, to educate. And I mean, I'm going to be 100% honest here, and this might make me sound horrible, but, you know, Juneteenth is not something that I had any awareness of until, I don't know, maybe like two years ago, maybe,
1: Well, thank you for sharing that. I mean, and, but you're not alone. There were so many people, so many people who did not recognize Juneteenth and didn't even know what it was about. And, and to be honest, there are a lot of black people who didn't know what Juneteenth was either. And I didn't learn about Juneteenth until I got to college. And so I, that was not something I learned in grammar school or in high school. It was in college was when I first knew about it. And it wasn't until later years when we really started to celebrate and recognize what it really meant. And so I think with... um all of the turmoil that we experienced just in last year alone, not, you know, all the, you know, 300 plus years, but last year alone and people really taking, uh, a look and acknowledging again, the beauty of our diversity, understanding that, okay, you may not celebrate it, but you know what it is. You know why people celebrate, you understand why, um, those who, uh, when they heard that they were free you know the edict went out that the slaves were free but the they didn't know they were free they didn't have cell phone cell phones it wasn't on tv (laughs) it didn't go on the world wide web you know (laughs) and so it was word word of mouth and of course slaves was an economic condition again because we are A capitalist country that's a whole nother conversation (laughs) but it was (laughs) it was an economic (laughs) condition so of course i'm not going to tell my what my the breadwinners that you are free Mm. so when the slaves these slaves knew down in and in the in the southern states that they were free like oh really it's 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 us we got the gun. We got, it's time to celebrate. And so um the symbolism of it all of what people and this was after so what, a year afterwards? because so, it was two wasn't and a half years. Two yeah. and a half years, right. Two and a half years after the edict went out that the slaves had been freed. Two year two and a half years later. And so yes, I, my household, we celebrate everything. So <laughs> cause I believe in celebrating all wins, right? So we celebrate this for people who endured still endured and they were survivors and they survived and they, uh, uh, endured that time period to try to get with the, the family that even either by blood or was created because of the circumstance, you know? So I think this is an awesome time for us to, um, celebrate Juneteenth and why it should be recognized. Um, Just like the Tulsa massacre. So many people talking about, they didn't even know what it was about. How amazing is that though, that we are in a time that we have the internet. And so you get more and you have documentaries being shared and people understanding like this was a community who was thriving they had businesses okay you cut us out so we're going to create something for our own and then it wasn't a riot because that's what the newspaper said it was a riot white people came in there and burned the town down because they were thriving and surviving and created their own and so even in that messaging that how does some people the, the burden of when you feel like you create your own, we're doing, you're working, you you are creating wealth for your neighbor, and then we're we're sharing and growing with each other and then we're continuing to to live this the the, the American dream, right? Hmm. Oh, but then now someone's telling me, well no, you can't live the American dream like that. This is not for you that's a burden and so i think recognizing what uh this community did and then what happened to them because if you do not know your history you are doomed to repeat it and so we have been repeating history because history because you have those who don't want history to be taught that's a whole nother conversation but again Things we have to know right things. We have to learn things. We should recognize how you a person chooses to celebrate I think it's upon is upon them, but we should recognize and acknowledge We acknowledge Pride Month Acknowledging our brothers and sisters who identify are uh, going back to language, you know the language that we use being mindful being inclusive of the words that people want how they want to be identified you know Jatar you made the comment about how we didn't have that before you couldn't skip over that you know you either male or female and now understanding that there are those who do not identify either as male or female so it's non-binary and so understanding that and recognizing that and including individuals on how they see themselves not how we think we should see them but how they choose to be seen and that's all people want is to be seen at the at the very basic foundation of it right to be really seen um for the other side of this
2: being that i did not celebrate juneteenth um i don't think that uh, celebrating the day that the last of the slaves were informed is a day to celebrate. Um, I think that they all should have been freed January 1st, 1862 when the Emancipation Proclamation, was notified, uh, went out when it was declared. Uh, but like she said, they didn't have news. They didn't have, you know, it had to travel via horse via, you know, a scroll via, (laughs) you know, however news was, um, you know, shared at that time. And I just, um, I feel like it's, uh, just another, a continuation of the betrayal of the broken promises of the United States. Um, and it's like, it took you two years. There were only how many states in the Confederacy? Did it really take that long? Or was it some sort of back-end deal that we will never know about that you know they agreed to because they really didn't want to hand over power? And so it was like, okay, we'll do it, but we'll do it on our time frame. And it, so much of history is the victors telling how they want to be betrayed as opposed to how it actually happened. Um, that I just, I'm on the spectrum or on the other side of it saying that I don't want to, uh, celebrate Juneteenth. I, I don't think that on my, from my perspective, it's not something that me and my family celebrates. Um, and that's just our take on it. You know, I, understand why people do celebrate it. I don't have a problem with people celebrating it. Um, but I just personally do not. Um, and in the vein of the Tulsa massacre, um, and Yolanda's comment about, you know, we need to learn from our history. I think the problem is, is that history for most people is not a living thing. You know, it's a thing that happened back then. It's a thing that, you know, people survived and we're not dealing with anymore. The problem is, is that, Um, people learn history, but then they don't, it's, you know, this abstract idea, this is the past and what's in the past has no reflection upon what is happening right now. When the truth is, is that's all generational wealth is. It is the past coming forward to the present, giving you an additional benefit or giving you an additional detriment, or it's, you know, it is very active in what's happening today. And the way that people sort of disassociate from it, because, um, you know, my family never owned slaves, right? But your family does have racism in its history, and it benefited from it in some way, form, or fashion. Um, you may not have millions of dollars in the bank, but your family was able to purchase a home that was able to increase in value that was able to give your parents equity. That was, you know, your parents were able to then give you the opportunity to have a college education or give you connections to people you went to school with that had better connections that were able to give you opportunities into jobs that you may not have the opportunity to get into. Like it doesn't always have to be the bottom dollar. Um, and I think what happened, um, I watched "Soul of a Nation," which talked about um, the Tulsa Massacre, and one of the survivors' granddaughters was talking about the general wealth that was the generational wealth that was destroyed um, with those businesses, and you know how they're building this museum and how they're going to. And she said, "But that doesn't benefit the people who died. That doesn't benefit the families that were disenfranchised. That benefits who? You're doing this as a." you know, honorarium to these people that lost their lives, but you still haven't made right, you know, the injustice that happened. And it's not just about the money. It is about what was also lost when that happened. And, um, you know, the the mayor that's there who has, you know, green-lighted finding the missing bodies and the missing, you know, uh, victims of this massacre Um, you know, he's gone as far as doing that. He's gone as far as doing the museum, but he's like, you know, we don't want to do reparations and we don't, you know, the people who are alive here now did not have anything to do with that. But the truth of the matter is, is that when a police officer kills somebody and the family sues, the police don't pay the lawsuit the city does. I'm a taxpayer. I didn't kill that person, but I'm paying for it. So why is this any different? Hmm. It's like, yeah, you didn't do the crime, but... These people are still dead. So if, if, if I didn't, if the police is entitled or given the ability to murder someone in the city and as a taxpayer, I agree to pay that family for this wrongful death, then isn't the city still on the line for, you know, things that they allow their citizens to do and get away with? I mean, these are people's lives. So I don't agree with that. I absolutely don't agree with that. You have it on this one instance where you have enabled people to murder people and say that it's just by the law and that when the the court decides in civil suit that actually, um, while we can't send you to jail for this, you actually did violate these persons' rights and we are going to give them monetary compensation for that, then why is it not the same? I feel like in this country we have this thing about Black people having their own. There's a Little India there's a little China. There's a Korea town. There's but what where's where's, you know, African American town? Where are the Black owned businesses? Where do we where are we allowed to set aside and prosper ourselves and not be destroyed? Where does that exist? I don't know. It's not here we don't have that and every example of where we have tried to come along and play by the same rules we are murdered we are mass murdered it's justified there's no there's no um, repercussions there's no consequences there even now 100 years later 400 years ago it where where does it happen when does it happen
0: it's Thank you for sharing your perspective on all of that. And I mean that this is an example of an uncomfortable situation or an uncomfortable conversation, you know, I mean, because what you're saying is I mean, it's uncomfortable. It's if anyone, you know, listening, you know, it's you hear it and go, ugh, uh. Ugh <laughs> Yeah, I don't I don't know what other way to say it. Um so I I appreciate you bringing it to us and and talking about it and and kind of just putting it out there just like that, because that is what it is. Well, ladies, because we've talked about a lot today, but I mean, as far as as all of what you've experienced over the past year with the task force and, and the opportunity to have and to promote tough conversations like this one um, and other programming that you have done, I would like to ask each of you what you have learned personally yourself by being involved with this IDE task force over the past year. So, Allie, could we start with you?
3: Yeah, I have Learned so so much, you know, from these ladies and from everyone else on our task force. All of the panelists we've been able to bring in to our conversations, um, just hearing about their experiences um, that I would not otherwise have had the opportunity to hear. Um, you know, Jatar when I think on our first conversation, we. She was very open and vulnerable about her experiences um, at work and even, you know, within the world of this association and how it's her experience is much different than, you know, mine has been as a white woman. Um, So that's something that I've uh, really taken from this is it's so important just to be open to these conversations and um, see it as a gift when someone is willing to be vulnerable And open with you and share their experience and let you know if you've said something offensive or um you know maybe if you're not being empathetic that's a that's a gift for them to tell that to you because you are as you know as a white person I am in the position of power you know if someone at work tells me that I've done something uncomfortable you know they're risking being ostracized or getting fired um for just being themselves um and I'm you know I'm only risking being uncomfortable for a few minutes in a conversation. So that's been huge for me. Um, and another thing that I've kind of kept on my mind always is a phrase that I saw a lot last year, "White silence is violence." Uh, you know, it's not okay anymore just to sit back and do nothing. So all of these conversations I take with me now, and whenever I see something in the street, online, within my family or friends, I just I have to speak up. So that's been huge for me just to be a better advocate.
0: Mm -hmm. Not just an ally. Yeah. (laughs) Right. How about you, Yolanda? What have you learned?
1: Um, First of all, working with these wonderful people has been so inspiring. I learn something every single time we have a conversation, every email that comes through when we share information. um, I know that I've grown. I've also understood the importance of continuing the fight and continuing the work and even if there are times where it may seem like, well, why are we doing this? No, nothing is being done. No, um, there's no change being seen within, not just within our chapter or within our industry, but personally, um, knowing that when you get an email or a phone call from someone and says, Hey, I learned a lot from that program, or I just re-listened to the, um, the program with Dr. Whitehead or the uncomfortable conversations and I learned something about myself um, that is the spark that says keep going
0: mm.
1: continuing to be the voice for the voiceless even though sometimes I may be in that
0: bucket of being voiceless it's very meaningful thank you and Jatar, how about you?
2: Um, what have I learned? Um, I've learned that it's okay to just share uh, the experiences. Before, there is definitely a taboo around saying anything like you experience it. Then, you know, pick up the phone, call Yolando. You will not believe. Uh, but instead of having more of those, I'm having more of, I'm sorry, I heard what you said, but that really may be uncomfortable. And I want to explain to you why. Um, Not because I want to pick on you and not because I want to, you know, make you an example, but because this made me uncomfortable. And you need to understand that even if this is an uncomfortable conversation for you, that this is why you should not say those things or this is why you shouldn't behave in this way or this is how I received what you had to say. And perhaps that's not what you meant. And so now you have this opportunity to backpedal and apologize. Uh, um, So I think um, what I've learned, I mean, I've learned that the pandemic had a way of spotlighting the things that I believe African-American people, black and brown people have seen for years, for decades, for centuries. Uh, on television. It was not a surprise to us uh, that George Floyd did not survive his interaction with the police. I think it was, um, you know, it was a grueling experience to watch it, uh, and I still have not watched it. Um, But I think it was an eye-opening experience for a lot of people, not just uh, white America, but for Asian America, for, you know, even Latino America. It's like, hey, this is, you know, something we have been trying to survive. Uh, This is our experience of America. Uh, This is our everyday and welcome. This is what it looks like for us. This is what it's like to wake up in a black or brown body and leave our home and know that we are not going to be treated fairly. But this has been our burden to carry. Um, And I think... That in this last year, it's like no, this is everybody's burden to bury. This is not Black History Month. This is American history. This does not just belong to others. This belongs to all of you, and we are still dealing with the repercussions of this. And now you need to deal with the repercussions of this because we cannot fix racism. We cannot fix the past, but we have a ownership and responsibility to fix what's happening right now. Um, and Hearing Allie feel encouraged and empowered and emboldened to say, you know, that she feels comfortable talking to her family, her friends, or when she sees something and she says something, you know, that's one more person who will not allow the same things to continue. Um, and that's, it's wonderful to hear. It's so encouraging to hear that, you know, even one person is willing to have the that conversation because that means... One more person understands that this is not comfortable, that this is not right, that this is not okay. And even the small thing that you're saying, you know, has an impact. The small thing that you're doing that you feel like is a microaggression or that you don't even realize is a microaggression is having a massive impact on someone else that has not felt able to say something. Um, So it, it has been an interesting year and it has been a powerful year and I hope you know we will all continue
0: definitely well I I absolutely made the connection between Allie's experience and your experience as far as Allie saying I have more I feel more empowered to to say something and then Jatar you feel more empowered to also say something I mean honestly (laughs) it these conversations, just having the conversations and communicating, I mean, that is truly the basis of what we're talking about here and just making sure people understand what the experience has been and is and why it's important to know that moving forward so we can change that. So speaking of which, what what do you all envision as the future of the ID task force? Do vision that will continue to go on you do you have any specific plans or goals
1: well of course i hope it continues but i my goal of course long-term goal and this is just my own personal that the ide task force will begin to evolve as it becomes a part of the culture of this is why we do things and it's not an afterthought or um, we need to do in addition, you know, plus, and, but it is automatically just infused in the way that we do things and is particular to our chapter. And, and, in our hospitality and meetings events, that we are uh, inclusive, that we are reaching out and speaking the names of those in the rooms when they're not there, like Jatar mentioned, to those who ha- give opportunities for those who are part of the marginalized community that wouldn't necessarily have the opportunity to bid on certain services or give speak their name for promotions and being in the C-suite and It will just be, uh, uh, we won't have to say this is the first or here's another, the first African-American man or woman or Latina or, you know, transgender. It would just be, it would just be, right? It would just be a part Mm -hmm. of how we do business and in being included board so I see the task force just continuing to be a mechanism to ensure that the again going back to what I mentioned earlier the 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 beauty of our diversity is ingrained in the way we move and function because it's a part of the culture and it'll be part of our business because it is good business and and then it what what we do will be a reflection what we do at work and in in amongst the community is a reflection of how we are at home because we're bringing that from our village and from our our, our our block our street because this is how we are and so this is how we are we bring the very best to the industry and it's beautiful with all this different colors and shapes and sizes and thoughts, and, and, and mechanisms, and it only can push us forward.
0: Definitely, the opportunity is there. And it's such a fascinating time, because the industry really is in a rebuilding stage, essentially, you know, again, not to go back to the busyness, but the fact that everyone said they jump back in, I hope and we it is our job (laughs) that we don't just jump back in and go back to where we were right we don't just jump back in and revert back to 2019 or 2018 and and forget that the past year happened and the conversations that we've had over the past year have happened this industry on all levels not just the industry but the whole country. (laughs) But for our purposes of this conversation, (laughs) our our chapter of PCMA, the greater Midwest chapter in the industry and every all the jobs and positions and roles that we support, um, the opportunity is here to make a change. So I am honored to have had you all on the show today to talk about the task force and the very important work that you are all doing. So thank you so much for joining me. And I hope everyone listening, if you're part of the Greater Midwest chapter or of any PCMA chapter, um, I hope you have been inspired by what's being done here. Um, And if you're not, and you enjoy what we've talked about and, and you were inspired to do your own task force of some sort, I'm sure any of us would be happy if you want to reach out and ask any questions, but um, it's definitely important work. So thank you all.
3: Thank you. Thank you.
2: Thank you for having us. This is a really important uh, continuation of
0: conversation. Thanks again to Yolanda, Jatar, and Ali for joining me to talk about the work that you do on the IDE Task Force and all that you have learned from doing it. As challenging as it can be to have difficult conversations, they are always the most important ones to have, as they are the ones to help move us forward into greater understanding and as a result, push us into action. Well, that is a wrap on this week's episode, and I want to hear from you. Please send feedback, show ideas, comments, questions, and of course, interest in participating to me at roomblockpodcast at gmail.com, or send me a message on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Instagram. Thank you for joining me today, and please remember to subscribe to The Room blog so you can continue to join in the conversation.